Mr. Uh, excuse me, Lord Scarblatt. You and your horde of orcs are gonna find these catacombs most sufficient for your needs. If you'll just uh, follow along there on that non-repo blue enumerated floor plan I've provided. But you see, there are 33 main chambers, five secret corridors, and a particularly nasty passage into the Underdark. Did I mention that the previous owner's gonna leave behind his carrion crawler? Yes, yes, it's all very nice. But do I really need eight different pit traps? I'll lose half my goblin hirelings before the first adventurer ever steps foot into the place. Well, think of it as a uh, lackey incentive program. Also, those damned magic mouths at every alcove? Well, that's the price you gotta pay for security. And, and this maze section. Do you really think that I want to get up and work through that every morning? It could be model. Do you know what it's going to cost? To replace those iron maidens alone in Hey, don't sweat it, don't sweat it. You know what? I know some people. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hi, this is Bob, 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 It's time for the show, This Old Dungeon, the show where grognards go to get their grog on. Lieutenant Tuvis, we're going to get a lot of stuff done, or he kicks my ass, or it'd be awesome. Featuring your hosts, I'm Briggy, I'm Thomas' wife, and I'm the noob. Somebody here call a carpenter? Uh, this is Thomas, husband to Briggy. And, uh, let's see, I work in a library, I write, I draw, I paint, I do all of this, but none of it very well. The truth is, I can always find games, though. This is Lou Alvin. I could charitably call myself a game designer and game publisher, but definitely a veteran role player, 35 plus in We work on it the rest of the night, we get it together. We can do this, right? Alright, this is episode zero recorded live on March twenty-eighth, two thousand twenty. And uh, as we're gonna be beginning these episodes, we're gonna do just a little rundown of our gaming weeks here and all things interesting that's happened to us. Anybody wanna start? Dead air. Dead air. <laughs> no one says anything. Um, yeah, I'll start. Um, so if uh, if anyone is aware of the dates that you just gave, uh, we're right in the middle of the entire COVID-19 thing. And that is what has been the impetus to finally get us off our butts and actually record this podcast. Lou, you've had this idea for a very long time now. Briggy has had this idea ever since we went to the Fear the Con uh, convention with Fear the Boot. Ooh, I don't know if you heard that thunder just now. Uh, as soon as I mentioned Fear the Boot, the guys <laughs> were like that. Um Anyway, she's been wanting to do one for a long time, and here we are. We're doing it. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm mucking about with roll twenty, like I said, trying to figure it out. I'm going to try and run some D and D fifth edition and some D and D Beck me stuff. I'm actually playing in a game right now. Uh, 
And we'll see how that goes because I don't know the setting and I don't know the rules, but eh, whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah so. so the my household under quarantine here, we've uh, we've been going a little stir crazy. Uh, I think we're up to our fifth uh, separate role playing game that's kind of going on uh, simultaneously. About every day we switch up, try something different, and have different things we come back to. Uh, nice. So we've got a. We got a Beckme uh, game that's going that we've we've already been through uh, um, in Search of the Unknown. We uh, mixed in a little Advanced Dungeons and Dragons with uh, the Village Hamlet, and uh, now we're doing uh, B5 Horror on the Hill. Done some. Mutant oh, wait, is is it all D and oh, is it all D and D? Are you doing anything else? Superheroes, Star Wars? Well, no, yeah. So that's or... that's one game. And then uh, I've been just uh, really hyped up on uh, Mutant Crawl Classics from uh, Goodman Games, and so I talked my uh, two of my kids into playing that. So they're they're kind of let me use them as guinea pigs to learn the rules on that. And then uh, other than that, uh, we've got an AD&D game going. And then my son is sort of running D&D. He's he's seven years old, so he's putting me through the most terrifying adventure of all the uh, the dungeon that the eight year old designed. He, well, he's almost eight. So uh, he's kind of come so up with things like, on the fly, and it's it's pretty interesting. It's I like bet. Axe Cop. It's like Axe Cop the RPG. Yes, yes, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Just you know, it, it really depends on uh, how close in the alphabet one monster is to the other, uh, whether or not I'm going to see them, because he's just kind of flipping pages on the monster manual, you know. Uh, is so he it's, going it's like, oh, this looks cool. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. So he started uh, today, I started into a room, and uh, he started me off uh, against a, a uh, I don't even know how to properly pronounce the, the creature, a, a Cthul. Uh, it's like one of these Aztec uh, rainbow flying snakes. Uh, and I was like, but man, it's, it's, it's a good creature. He goes, no, no, this is the black Cthul. And it's like, you know, nightmare black, and it's all evil and everything. Uh, so that was, it was pretty pretty intense, you know flip-flopping on me like that okay yeah we very creative uh thomas ran a game last weekend and i played a bard because i like to play bards and uh it was good and scary kind of it was like what was the setting honey um the setting was uh, it was yeah, it was House of Strahd, the 5E version. So, and this was before the lock-in, lockdown really came into effect. So we had a, a friend of Owls over, and they were playing with us. And we had, like, just a basic intro to the game. And then towards the end of it, the Mists of Ravaloff came in. And, of course, now they're in Barovia. And I don't know when we're going to get a chance to play it again. <laughs> I think we could. We just get the family members together, you know, and do it. Well, we'll do that, or we're going to do something, uh, something like that. I don't, I don't know what, but I'm going to pull them into it. We might do Call of Cthulhu because um, uh, two of the players in this house love horror. 
uh, especially M, my youngest daughter. She's a big supernatural fan, like of the show, and she likes horror movies and stuff like that. So I think Call of Cthulhu would work really well with her, especially the newest edition. It's very streamlined. Yeah, great game. Yeah, um, you were you were prodding me to to kind of drop the pencil and paper and and try to get on the roll twenty, and I did. I made an account, kind of played around with it a little, watched a tutorial video. So. Uh, who knows, man? Maybe, maybe we start connecting up. Uh... Well, I'm going to send you a link very soon because uh, I did get one going. I, I'm going to send you the link. I'm going to run a game that I downloaded from there, and then I'm going to write a game. Uh, it's kind of like the old days, back when you got the old Redbox edition. You know, you'd play through the intro, you'd play through the modules, and then you'd start writing your own. So I'm going to play through a pre-written game on Roll21. I'm a player in another game, and then I'm going to write my own. And it's one I've had an idea for for a long time, and it's going to be a Beckme game. That way it's not a whole lot of stats this, modifiers that. Here's you've got this skill versus this other skill and everything else. It's like everyone's exactly so uh, I'm going to send a, a link to you and Briggy and then our son, Timmy, who does not live here. He has his own place, um, and we're going to see what happens with it. So I'm going to giddy pig on you guys. You'll get that link soon. If it works out, then maybe I'll uh, do a Lord of the Rings and see if I can put it on there. That'd be fun. Yeah, we... Uh, since, uh, was it Cubicle 7? Yeah, Cubicle 7 just lost that license to Lord of the Rings. So they did a big humble bundle of all of their Lord of the Rings 5e PDFs. And, of course, I did it. Uh, we have a few physical books, but now we have everything in PDF format, which works really well for playing Roll20. Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. Real quest. And uh, after a little intro here, for those of you that are getting up to speed with how we're going to run things, uh, we're going to go right into our next segment. Uh, we're currently calling it Grail Quest. Grail Quest with Echoes. Yeah. Hopefully I have some really neat sound effect that uh, you listeners at home just heard, uh, if I can find a good one. So anyhow, this is the part of this program where we're kind of we're talking about what it is we're, we're out there looking for in role-playing. And uh, we're being real loosey-goosey with it. We're, we're looking for things like physical books we're looking for, systems. But we're also talking about uh, what is it we want to improve on in our games. What is it we want to find a new way of doing in our games. Um, you know, be it you know, a way we're handling a rule or a, a way we're portraying a certain character or NPC. Um, so, again, I'm I would, just... I would even say it is also what are we looking for in gaming like yeah. personally i've always wanted to i love doing superhero games you and i both do mm -hmm. they're a little tricky um i but then they're already tricky and it depends on the power level you do and the type of setting you do in real low setting kind of they only have like one or two powers like the mm -hmm. show heroes that was big 
Yeah, if you clean uh, the stage, kind of thing, yeah. Right. Or, or are you doing street level stuff, or are you going to go really big like the Justice League and the Avengers and stuff like that? Well, what I've always wanted to do is kind of a Legion of Superheroes science fiction superhero game. I've always wanted to combine the two together. So superheroes in space, Legion of Superheroes, Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought it was a lot of fun. But that said, how in the world do you really make that work? Because that's a mashup of two very distinct um, settings, which is, might be easy to write in prose or in comics, but running a game with all these different personalities and people involved, that would be a little interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah, because on the sci-fi side of things, um, the, the, the draw in there is toying around with the science, toying around with the tech, trying to, you know, solve those problems. But then on the superhero side of things, the powers automatically overcome a lot of that stuff. So, yeah, that's that would be... Which a, is why I would go with Legion of Superheroes kind of thing, because uh, one of the tropes of the Legion of Superheroes is, one, everyone comes from a different world, all have a different ability. No one in the Legion can have the same power as someone else. And they usually only have one or two powers. And then they augment their abilities like their Legion flight rings, which allows them to fly. And it's a universal translator and also creates like a survival system in space. So there's a way you can get around that. But, you know, how would you run it? What system would work best? I am leaning towards GURPS. And I know I just heard someone scream out there in the distance when I said GURPS. But, but do they GURPS have a supplement a that's system. just for that? Hold on. What did you say, Briggy? I think GURPS is a good system. The end. <laughs> I think it's a good system. Gavel you can now. make up your stuff, and you can tell the story you want to tell. Yeah. And you're not beholden to anything. So that's what I think is good. Yeah, I was just throwing out there, Thomas, uh, does GURPS already have a supplement for that? Because, man, they have a blue dozen supplements, right? Okay, not... I don't think specifically for that, like superheroes in space. But if I were to walk over towards my shelf right now, I have a lot of GURPS books because even if you don't play the system, they're a great resource. Um, I mean, they almost read in some ways like a high school textbook on the subject. So um, I do have a supers book. I have a couple of different science fiction ones. I've got an ultra tech book. I've got a space book. I've got, I've got a couple of others in there so it's it's figuring out how to take that system and how to m mix it all together and make it work yeah. you know uh, mostly because it's a point based system you want to have your point base for your superheroes but then you have your extra points for your skills being in space you know uh, that's that's one of those things you've got to you're going to have to sit down and just figure it out yeah do you think uh, you think you'd be running superheroes against supervillains or would it be more like these superheroes are taking on cosmic threats, invading alien armies, that kind of thing? Well, if it was a campaign, it would probably uh, be a mixture of both. Because if, if it's a campaign with a beginning, middle, and end, yeah, they'll probably be just a set villain or a couple of different villains or an organization or empire or whatever you want to call it. If it's ongoing campaign, you finish one arc and you move into another. You know, uh, 
but I'm not one to keep going with one campaign on and on and on. Like you hear about these guys who I've been playing the same D and D campaign for 30 years. <laughs> I'm very impressed with that. And oh, I yeah. think that's very, very freaking cool. I wish I had that sort of thing, I mean, but at the same the time, case of the new and shiny kind of thing, but yeah, no, that's impressive. Oh, I've killed games with the new and shiny before myself. So I get it. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, you're lacking in experience in role-playing games. Uh, you know, like we're not going to get into the whole thing about what's good and what's great and what sucks about critical role. You know, this is not what this is going to be about, but I'll just sur- surmise with this. Uh, role-playing games are Dungeons and Dragons, but Dungeons and Dragons are not role-playing games they're not all of role-playing games you know there's science fiction there's superheroes there's horror there's spy stuff there's other tropes of fantasy besides straight D. um you know there's all I, i've got pulp stuff like uh, hollow earth expedition on my shelf that works out really well I'm a big trek fan i've got that stuff yeah hollow earth is great you know doctor who is great yeah i mean i've got those stuff too so i, I think you're limiting yourself if uh, all you do is D&D, I think it's a great gateway drug, but suppo- just move beyond that, you know. So anyway, that's what I'm that, that's something I've been looking for. That is a quest of mine that I have had for a very, very long time. So that's mine. There you go. Briggy, what's on your grail quest this week? Uh, honestly, my favorite part of just RPG gaming is the story, and uh, I had a great time last week watching everybody's reactions <laughs> to the plot and what they're doing, and it's a lot of fun to watch your kids get involved, you know, so it's, for me, that's what that is, the heart of it. It's not mechanics, it's not leveling up or any of that stuff. I, I leave that to the online gaming uh that i do so i don't worry about any of that kind of stuff i i just like to have a good story and you know help out in the uh, cause of whatever we're my character is doing at the time so that's really the only thing i really look for real quick because you brought it up so you're mentioning online gaming you're kind of if if correct me if i'm wrong you kind of came from the mmo side of things and then kind of got introduced into role-playing out of that. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That is true. In fact, I was going to say, um, I was going to say, like, you can create probably um, what Thomas was talking about, even from a comic book story, probably. If you love the story enough, then you could create it, because, I mean, that's how I started that's how I ran my first game. I took one of the instances out of the Lord of the Rings online that I liked, and then I turned it into uh, the game that we did for non-con since we weren't going to Gen Con year before last. Something like that. That's the way to do it. Still big, still little. Anywhere you can find an inspiration. It's yeah. Well, I like the story, but I didn't like... Um, I mean, I just took the stats from the book, you know, and then I just used the story. So it was a lot of fun, and I think that if you like that, like, pick a story, and then you can get into it. And once I did that, it, I was like, okay, I think I can do the 5e, you know. Like, it made me feel like I could run more games. Yeah. But, yeah, I came from the MMO to role-playing, and it was a little scary. 
because there's an anonymity online. <laughs> so you can look like an idiot online, and it's not a big deal. <laughs> but yeah, I find that fascinating because I think you know when you look at the statistics of uh, you know most of the gamers that have gotten into the hobby in the last 10, 15 years, most of them have shared your experience. Whereas I think Thomas and I both, you know, we started off, you know, face-to-face -face books, you know, and paper role-playing. Well, that's how we met each other, yeah. is you were gaming uh, Star Wars D6, the West End game system. You were at Castle Comics in Lafayette. I came in. I just, you know, was sitting around and said, hey, I would love to join. You're like, okay, make a character. <laughs> I did. I came back the I made. I came back the next week, and you know, we not only went from just being guys who played at a shop, we became friends, yeah. and that was through role playing games. Yeah, I, I uh, had a Grail Quest in mind up until this morning, and I ran across something online, and I I jettisoned that one. I've got a new Grail Quest, and it is somewhat lighthearted. I don't I don't know that I'm actually desperate for this particular thing, but online I was uh, reading a blog about a, a set of miniatures that came out in 1979 called the Paint and Play uh, Dungeon Dweller set. Have you ever heard of these? Uh, by Heritage Miniatures. And uh, I'd never really heard about it. I'm not a big minis guy personally anyhow. But it just sounded like a kind of a cool thing. This company, they decided, uh, you know, right there kind of in the heart of role-playing's golden age to develop a set of miniatures that within the box had like a little cardboard play mat and had little stats for each miniature based on like their own little simple mechanic and so you could paint these miniatures up and then you could go on this quest that was basically laid out for you on this map uh, and it was just kind of cool um, they made a couple of these sets they made one called uh, Crypt of the Evil Sorcerer and one called Caves of Doom and the two could be combined together and then later on they released some science fiction ones called Star Commandos and Galactic Rebellion and this person, I have heard of some of these. I think because I do look for vintage stuff online all the time, and I have come across those, and they come for a pretty good. Uh, yeah, penny, that's I why I'm not real serious about going out and getting them. But just the concept of them, uh, it kind of hit me because it, it seems like the perfect thing uh, for my my seven going on eight year old son uh, who's interested in role playing. I, I think it'd just be you know just hit right dead center of the target for him. In the, this person's uh, blog, this is off of uh, their website's called goingfaster.com, and it's under the, the Heritage page off of that. Uh, they go on and talk about them and their uh, junior high friend coming over and setting all these miniatures up and trying to combine the space set with the the uh, fantasy set. It just it, it sounded kind of cool, very, very nostalgic. And uh, so I'd love to run into a set of those. The maps on them look gorgeous for being just cardboard maps. Um, really well done. Uh, you know, the kind of maps that you didn't really see in role-playing games until more closer to, like, the 90s where they started using full-color paint and stuff. Um, so anyhow, if, if you're out there and want to take a look at that, that's, that's something that I would hunt down, I think, at some point or something like it maybe. Uh, good family entertainment, I think. Okay, that's cool. And I'm sure miniatures also, um, they really appeal to kids, too, because there's this toy aspect to it. And they appeal to adults, too, because, you know, you get to be the adult kind of playing with toys. You get away with it, you know. I did that once with my kids when they were little. We were playing uh, Heroclix, and I set up, I got 
some terrain out and I set out uh, trees at the far end. I put a cardboard castle up, you know, one I got at Gen Con and we kind of called the cardboard castle Arkham Asylum. And these were the, the grounds of Arkham, right? And they each got to the, the play their characters. We did a real, um, really simple rules, light, very homebrewed version of hero clicks. And they loved playing it. Everyone got to have their three characters. I kind of played the bad guys, kind of like a, an RPG version of it, you know. And they were more or less the Teen Titans trying to um, stop Harley Quinn from rescuing the Joker from Arkham Asylum or from breaking him out. So uh, that's, a, that's a fun way to do it. And I know the kid... The kids would just love that toy aspect because, you know, uh, I just turned 48 and I love that toy you aspect. You know, I was thinking on it when I was reading this blog. Like, I remember when I was a kid, my, I mean, like, I, I started role-playing, uh, I was probably about eight years old. Mm -hmm. But even before that, uh, I remember going into the model shop to get, like, uh, model railroad stuff or model planes or whatever and just being fascinated by those uh, the lead figures there on the, the bubble packs. Uh, and that used to be the only place you could find that stuff were the specialty model yeah. shops and stuff. And, and I, I got to think about, well, why was that? I mean, I had toys and stuff, but I think back then, especially in the 70s and the 80s, um, the level of detail on toys was not that great. I mean, you look at some of those old action figures, and then they're pretty kind of lame. I mean, just kind of more or less painted on clothes, and that's about it. Well, I think the best example would be the original uh, Kenner-released R2-D2. Oh, yeah. Then if you see the new R2-D2 uh, figures they have out, put them side by side, and the original R2-D2 doesn't even look like R2-D2. But when you were a kid, it was amazing, but now that you're older, you're like, wow, I was dumb. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't look anything like But yeah, I think the, the miniatures back then, on, on the other hand, still had quite a high level of detail. I mean, all the little you know sacks of gold and uh, you know, the mm -hmm. uh, striation on the, like, fur hides and stuff like that. So I think part of that, it was just such oh, a beautiful piece. I've got a couple piece, of Ralph you know? ones that still look good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's uh, let's move on to our next segment here. Say it again, Briggy. <laughs> I'm just saying that the only thing I do is buy the miniatures for Thomas. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, and I And we go, hey, can you paint this one for me? <laughs> so what's the next uh, topic we're going to work to? So the, the next segment here we got is letters to the Homeowners Association. And we don't ha really have much to do tonight uh, for this since this is our episode zero, but I think we do need to let people know about this segment and what we're looking for on it and uh, give out some contact information. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from. My opinion is letter writer is a total wacko. Okay, so what is our email address for uh, this old dungeon there, Lou? All right, our contact information for those of you at home that would like to send us an email, uh, we'd love to have it. Our contact is thisolddungeon at gmail.com. Uh, that's old dungeon with uh, no D. Uh, so T-H-I-S-O-L-D-U-N-G-E-O-N at gmail.com. And we would, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you know, what sort of things do we want them to tell us, guys? Um, I think what would be really good is like if they've got any kind of comment they want to tag on to what we've talked about, if they've got anything they want to say disagree with, 
Uh, I especially appreciate uh, that because that generates conversation, yeah. and that's more what we want. But we don't want just, you suck. <laughs> uh, Tell us something we don't know. We know that. Yeah, yeah. Give, give, give us something we, we don't know already. No, uh, but have a, a well-reasoned thought. Or, uh, you know, even if you're just playing devil's advocate, I have no problem with that. I think it's great. Because uh, it just, like I said, generates conversation, and you might think or hear something about that that we wouldn't. Like you mentioned that miniature uh, game thing that uh, has captured your imagination. What if there's someone out there that happens to listen to this and knows a lot about that? They could give us a lot of information about it, and that'd be really cool. You know, there might be a bit of trivia about that. Oh, one of the people who worked on this was so-and-so. They ended up working for blah, blah, blah and designed this game for TSR you know, or whatever. And we love that sort of stuff. I know I do. I love knowing how the sausage is made, you know, whether it's uh, comics, uh, the business of comics, games, gaming, all that stuff. I, you know, I've read several books about it. And being that this uh, podcast is uh, kind of circling around, revamping and retooling old systems and old adventures, uh, I'd love to hear from listeners that are doing that sort of thing, running uh, games right now with renovated rules or running adventures that are old school and a new school rule set. Um, tell us what you're doing, uh, how you're doing it, and what you think of it. Yeah, because uh, before all of this shutdown stuff happened, um, I was running D&D 5e games for kids at the library. I had started a D&D club. And uh, we started with the big uh, relaunch. It's over on the shelf. I can see it. Uh, was it Goodman Games that did the Keep into the Borderlands? Uh, it was an update. A big, huge, honking hardcover book. The first part has In Search of the Unknown, B1, and Keep on the Borderlands, B2. And the second part has, um, it's, it's a 5e update, pretty much of the same thing. And, which I find kind of funny because 5e is so flexible. You don't really need to update anything. You can almost just run it. With your armor uh, it's very forgiving. Kind of thing, yeah. yeah, just go. Just make it up. You know what? As long as you make it fair, just make it up and your players won't know. But that's a whole other topic. Um, uh, so anyway, I, I ran the windmill encounter from In Search of the Unknown for the kids. When you say the windmill and encounter? Yeah, there's uh, there's an um, I don't know if it's in the original must, module. The, the original one a... was really a fill in your own adventure kind of thing. They gave you the rooms, yeah, yeah. and for the most part, you had to put what was in them. There's a couple rooms that had detailed, like the pool room and uh, the, the cave of mm -hmm. bats and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just we just finished playing B1. Oh, it's been a couple months mm -hmm. ago, and uh, the original one didn't well, have a windmill. They gotta tell me about this windmill, man. Okay, so the fifth edition one. Uh, they have what is on top of Kreskitanen, or however you say <laughs> it. Um, there is a, a windmill that is on top of the cliffs that uh, Kreskitanen is, the caverns, are underneath. And it's infested by kobolds and stuff. And there is a, um, there's a trap door in the basement of the windmill, which leads into the first level. So it's an alternate way to get in. Um, I had them take a job to go clear out the kobolds, and then I, you know, they went and they did the encounter and stuff like that. And then I was hoping, um, and then I was hoping that after that, 
you know, they might want to explore more. They never did find the trap door, so that's, you know, <laughs> regardless. Damn, so And I did not railroad them because I was going to have them, uh, I had this really cool idea where they get into a river and fall down a waterfall, and then on, on the other side of the waterfall is where the caverns were. Uh, you know, I thought that would be a really cool image and stuff. Eh, they never fell into the river. They never went down the waterfall. None of these things ever happened, so I didn't do it. Uh, no railroading, like I said. So anyway, uh, that's what the windmill encounter is. Though. All right. Yeah, definitely not in the original. The original, uh, basically, there's just an opening to the dungeon, and you, you do with it what you want. In my kids' case, uh, it was kind of on the side of a hill, and it was covered in vines and brush and stuff, and uh, there had already been an adventure that tried to sneak in there, an adventuring party, actually. And so I made a uh, one of those um, walls collapsing in on you sort of traps as one of the first alcoves in the entrance, and there was a stick that they had, the, the original party had jammed between the two walls, so when the kids come up on it, you know, that stick's been there for ages and is now kind of bowed and cracking. And so that there's that element of can they make it underneath it without breaking it and having the walls pinch in on them. So that was how we got in. Yeah. but And I bought the Keep on the Borderlands book mostly because it is my all-time favorite D&D module. I mean, it goes back to when I was a kid. I ran that. I ran, I don't have a copy of it anymore, but I ran the second edition Return to the Keep on the Borderlands. I even read, I don't remember who wrote it, I even read the novelization that they had back in the late 90s with third edition. Man, God have mercy on your soul, buddy. Yeah, I read it. I don't have it anymore. It was not great. Uh, yeah, I looked into we'll it. it and, uh, yeah, there wasn't there wasn't anybody giving that any favors, man. They, they nobody liked that. Oh no. Yeah, no, it was you know, and I was reading all kinds of fantasy stuff at the time, you know, just anything I could get my hands on. But <clears throat> so right now, uh, so I bought this version, and I have even considered uh, buying a roll twenty version. But I'm like, you know what? I no, I'm good. Yeah, so for those of you listening at home, uh, if you've got some stories like this you can share with us, hey, send us an email, uh, t- you know, uh, record uh, a little audio, send it by email to us. Uh, we'd love to have it. Uh, we're looking at releasing these about every two weeks to a month. We're, we're going to see how we can do. This is all new to us. So be patient with us if you don't get a response right away, but we're we're rolling down the tracks on this, and we'll see what we come to here. Yeah, and this uh, this whole experiment of what we're trying to do, uh, we want to do something different that's not what's been going on with other podcasts. Like I mentioned, uh, Fear the Boot, I listen to that a lot. That's I don't listen to a lot of gaming podcasts, but I do listen to that. I know the guys there. I've been to Fear the Con. I've played with them at Gen Con. Friends with them on Facebook, and you know I listen to their AP and stuff like that. Um, but I don't listen to a lot of them, but there's a lot of them out there and they already cover a lot of topics like news podcasts. OK, we could do another news podcast. Well, there's already just like in cable, there's already news channels out there. Do we need to start another one? No. Uh, do we need to do an advice one? Uh, well, maybe because everyone's got something to say and there's all kinds of good things you can glean from that. And that's going to come out in anything naturally, I think. Uh, there's APs. I don't know if I want to go down that route. It might be fun. Who knows? I've never tried it. But you'd have to have something unique, something that would bring people in. And so we're trying to take uh, 
this old dungeon as a way of looking at old games, old modules. Do they stand the test of time? Do they still work? Can they be updated? What can we use from them? What can we not? Uh, you know, some of them are great just as is. Uh, or I, I think I came up with a tagline for us where grognards go to grog. This old dungeon. Faithful listeners, uh, we're back. Uh, Briggy had to take care of some uh, technical problems we were having with Thomas's computer, and I think she's got it under wraps now. She's our big technician, so I trust in her. Um, we're going into the segment. Uh, the the heart of the show here, the part where we roll up our sleeves and tear down some dungeon walls. This is this old dungeon. All right, in this part of the show, we will normally have a particular rule set or a particular adventure module that we're looking at, wanting to revise, renovate, make new again, make usable to all you out there in uh, podcast land. Uh, but for our zero uh, episode, we're just going to kind of talk about what we're doing in this, like, like what the point of it is and all that. And I think maybe one of the first things we have to tackle is uh, aesthetically what is old school and what would be considered contemporary. Where are we making that divided line of these things need looked at and these things are, are modern and uh, good to go or what have you? Well, I, I see that and I think, well, there's two ways to look at that. You could look at the rule system. Because a lot of these were written, you know, back with uh, Beckme or uh, AD&D uh, 1 or 2E, uh, whatever you want to call that. And then there's also what I would call play style. Uh, play styles have changed so radically, uh, even in the last few years, uh, with TSR being bought out by Wizards of the Coast and the advent of the popularity of board games and card games and their you know, of course, was the three to four to five uh, editions of D&D. And then there was Pathfinder in the middle of it, you know. So you've got all that system stuff. But then in the in the, the style of play, it's changed a lot because of shows like Critical Role and the advent of podcasting and things like actual plays. There's a lot of actual plays going on right now. And I don't really listen to a whole lot. I've listened to one in the past called Crit Juice, which is kind of pod faded. And I listened to the Fear the Boot AP, specifically the Skies of Glass one, which is a post-apocalyptic, real nitty gritty game, you know, but a lot of it, you know, it's not just about kicking down the doors and killing the monster and taking their treasure. And then you get to the very bottom level and finally get into the last room and there's the big boss. You know, and you kill them, and you've won the adventure. Uh, there's more complex. There's more complex plot lines now. There's more complex characterization. Um, you know, and you can have a game that lasts for a very long time. We did a game. I think it was you, Briggy, myself, a few other people that lasted 18 months, and we played from beginning to end. And I wanted to take a break, and that actually ended up killing that game and that group on unfortunately. Uh, and then probably a couple of years ago, we did another one. You were not a part of this, but it was Briggy, myself, and a couple of friends. And it was 
going back to our Grail quest, I actually got to do one of them, which was an all-dwarf campaign. And I wasn't just trying to do an all-dwarf campaign. A lot of fun. It was kind of, uh, it was fun. Oh, my God. Um, It was a lot of fun. And one of the things that uh, we did with that was it was kind of like The Hobbit. It was a bunch of dwarves reclaiming their lost uh, citadel under the mountain sort of thing. And it ended up being a lot of fun. So I did get to do that. Um, got to do one of my girl quests, but you know, it's, it, it's has to do with rule sets. It seems crunch is not popular anymore at all. Uh, for them. Well, and that's, that's not a true statement. There's a lot of crunch out there, but for the most part, it's not a thing so much anymore. Finding that on that front it's... row of uh, RPG material when you go into your hobby shop, are you? No, I mean Pathfinder went to second edition mm-hmm. and they doubled down. I'm kind of thinking there, there's kind of like two separate things you can kind of look at. Like when you look at rule sets, uh, if you look at the the older games, you got a lot of like nested rules where it's not like things aren't streamlined. Like you're not learning one rule and it kind of applies to multiple situations but it's like you have this rule and then when you're using that you might come into this situation that then you apply this rule um example that would be like you've got uh you know going to to D&D because it's the the grand familiar for all role players right it you've got the the thief has their set of rules for using thieving skills which is a different set of rules than what uh you know, your, your wizard's using for the spells that he or she's casting or the the combat maneuvers that a, you know, barbarian gets. Um, you know, they all have class abilities, but those abilities all are very different and running off of different systems. Well, I think a lot of that had to do with how Gary Gygax wrote a lot of those rules. Dave Arneson had a lot to do with it, but I think he would be sitting around the table, and I think if someone wanted to do something that was not written out in the rules or out of the ordinary, he would just come up with a ruling. You know, okay, I'll roll a D6. You've got a 2 and 6 chance. And if you look at the Thieves' rules, a lot of them are 1 or 2 and 6 chances. Uh, A lot of them, uh, especially with basic D&D, uh, like thieves, like I said, thieves' abilities, rogues' abilities are one and two and six chance. Uh, the halfling, I think, had that for hiding, um, you know, for his stealth rolls and stuff. And I think you have a lot of these different rules because literally a lot of this he was making up as he went along and then wrote them down later. Now, are you familiar with the term uh, Vancean magic? Yes. Um, I've actually. I've read some of Jack Vance's stuff, so I understand where... Not everybody's going to know that. What in the world are you talking about? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Grognards will throw around this term, Vancean magic, and it doesn't have necessarily an exact definition, but the basic from what I take from it is the idea of every spell is its own creature. You know, So when you cast Magic Missile, it has a certain effect. And it's it's a finite spell, and it's you either know it or you don't. Uh, as opposed to an open magic system where I've got magical powers and I can make them do what I want them to do, kind of like in uh, White Wolf's uh, uh, Mage game. I forget what the full title of that is. Mage the something or other. Uh, That's it. Mage the something yeah, or other. I, I, I'm, this sounds about right. So anyhow, uh, I, I think that there's a 
No, go ahead. Uh, sorry, man. No, I was going to add, uh, That's ex- you're absolutely correct on the Vancey and Magic thing. One other thing, and this was an element that came into the spell casting in D&D, is because I read the first book, okay? Um, when the when the mage, when the wizard would leave and go do a thing, they would select a series of spells, okay? And suppose it was five spells, and they had them burned into their brain, which is a term that... Uh, uh, Gygax even used in his original D&D stuff. And once he cast that spell, it was gone. He had to go back and relearn it all over again, just like the mechanic for, for D&D. And that's another aspect of Vancey and Magic. And he totally cribbed all of that straight out of Jack Vance's books. So one thing I wonder is, how old school is that? I mean, I, I know that fifth edition still uses Vancey and Magic, and and uh, you know as well, uh, you know the Pathfinder game does. But is that something that will go to the wayside? Because I know it's, to me, it's it's always been a thing that people hate is, gotta look up the spell. Oh, what does that spell do? Oh, you know this this character has these five spells. I gotta go look all this stuff up to be able to run them as a DM against these players here. Um, you know, I wonder where that's at. Well, I I think that's I think it's always going to stay like that. But I think, uh, like for me, for example, playing the bard, I only have so many um, cantrips and spells a day I can do. But I bought the nifty little D and D cards, so I don't. I, it's already there. I don't have to look it up. I can pick the cards and put them in. You know, I have this little. There's a lot of tools. I guess there's a lot more tools. Maybe I should be saying. So there's this. Well, it's cool because it has like little slots for the cards, and it has slots for your gaming sheets. It's like a little notebook with a folder thing, and it's got a cool scene on it. And I can just go to my card and go, okay, I'm gonna do you know thunderclap, boom, and I have the card in front of me. I can tell whoever. It's usually Thomas what I'm supposed to be doing and what it's going to, what, you know, what the effects are, what they have to do to counteract it or whatever. So I think that stuff isn't going to ever change, to I, be I, honest. That's my personal long opinion. Long before prices got too crazy, I picked up the sets of uh, Cleric and uh, Magic User second edition cards uh, the, the first time they did mm. something like that. And, and they are super handy. You're right. Having, you know, being able to say, okay, these spells are part of this character and then just having them on hand and you can kind of as a wizard you can pull the ones you're going to have memorized for the day and know that you know that's what's memorized it's pretty nice yeah yeah i got the ones for the bard and it goes all the way up to level five and it has some blank ones as well which is kind of cool what do you think about charts do you think charts are an old school thing or do you think that's just part of role playing i mean how uh how old school no, that, versus that uh, definitely contemporary do you think those are? That's definitely old school. Old school, old school. Uh, charts just are not used oh, to it. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. That's a hard one. Uh, you never really have played it with charts, only a little bit. Like when I've ran old school, like basic Beckme type stuff. But you came into it in, during third edition. That's when you started playing, and it's all formulas now. It's gone from charts and stuff like that to it's algebra. You know, it's formulas. Right. You ran this superhero type of thing, and it had a chart, and it was really neat, and I liked it. 
I have no idea what that was. It's really old. You got it from eBay. Um, it looked like 70s. I think my character had an afro. Um, Villains and vigilantes? No, it was a Marvel phaser rip. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that has one chart to rule them all, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. That it did. Yeah, it was kind of neat, though. I mean, I don't, I don't know if they're going away. I probably are in a way. I mean, to be technical with it, you know, you still have kind of some chart stuff in the five E edition to show you know, where you're putting points where and stuff. So there's still charting going on, you know? Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, I was recently looking at uh, the Paranoia game. It's a game I haven't been able to play in forever and ever. And uh, it is like, you look at this chart to figure out where you look on that chart to figure out where you look on this third chart, and then that gives you your result kind of thing. Uh, yeah, well, that's so thought, Yeah, man, this... That's the sort of thing that's gone by the wayside because people want it to be fast, want it to be quick. You know, you have a formula in your head. West End Games did that. You know, they do a rule of thumb or a basic mechanic. You know, here's your basic mechanic. When in doubt, do this. Keep going. Cause, what about uh, – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say because I love the idea of just, you know, create something that sounds like a good rule and keep the game moving. The day's – I'm too old for that stuff anymore, but the days of arguing around a table and pulling out your books and flipping through them, you know, the scholarly, nerdy wankery, you know, uh, is it's it's not fun. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there are people who still do that. Uh, you and I can think of a few people that we've gotten into arguments with about it. And I'm about empowering the GM to tell us a good story and we run along with it and influence the story. You know. Yeah, the, the the GM's there to to throw down the challenge, and the the players are there to to portray the characters, and anything that gets in the way of that just wrecks the game, in my opinion. Well, I will say on top of that, and this is where I think that this, here's a new concept in gaming. Uh, you know, there's like there's the player and the GM. No, everyone is a player. The GM is playing the game. The GM is playing the game, you know, playing, you know, their director. They are all of the supporting characters, the, the NPCs, they're the monsters, they're the traps, they're the setting, they're all of this stuff. But they are a player also, but they are filling the role of the game master. Game mastering is playing. Yeah, the characters are trying to, or the characters, the players are, are trying to portray their character, build their character up. And the the game master is kind of doing the same thing for the game world or the or, or the story's plot or whatever you know. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say, what do you think about uh, XP for killing things? Is that uh, is that old school or you feel that's still kind of in mode? I'm always up for XP, so I like killing things for XP. Or I'm an XP person, so definitely XP. I know there's a lot of people talking about you know just. They're just abandoning XP systems altogether, and it's just, hey, we play this game, you get through it, your second level, third level, whatever, you know, just you, you incrementally go up just by playing the game. We're not going to track points or anything like that. I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> I think, you know, you can do that, but I don't know. I think there has to be reward for the time and effort you're putting in. So I think XP is always good for everybody, even... Uh, the GM, to be honest. Okay, we're having a little technical difficulty again, so... 
so uh, Thomas, you want to weigh in on that last one on XP for killing things or keeping track of XP separately for characters? Well, it depends uh, on the style of game that you're playing. If you want to have that old school feel, then that's what you do. And there's so you do kind of classify that as an old school thing. Then. It definitely is. Although I've seen a lot of people, and I've done this a little bit, um, where you um, you do the XP thing, but then you also do what I think the term is milestone leveling or milestone experience. You know, you do this adventure, and then at the end, if you make it through this dungeon, you will level up to this. Uh, or whatever. But then that's also assuming that everyone is the same level. And unlike old school, like all the classes in AD&D had different experience point levels. You know? uh -huh. They're trying to hit different points to get to the next yeah, level. Yeah, and yeah. like I, I don't have the charts in front of me right now, but like say the wizard took longer to level than the fighter did or something. And I want to say thief, that little bastard thief would always be like, you know, four levels ahead of everybody well, else because his chart was so Well, simple. and then they also did, you know, depending on your game, they also did things like you got experience points based uh, upon the amount of gold that you got. You got experience points for monsters. Or, or for having a great strength. You know? Right. Not only do you have the benefit of having the strength, but then you get rewarded every game for it, too. Yeah. Yeah. And then what also you would have uh, an experience point bonus like... Uh, I want to say there were, there were all kinds of different things like that that would come into play. Um, so I do think that's kind of an old school thing. I think it's still there, but there's a lot of games that don't use experience points at all. I mean, they use it. You might get character points and you save them or use them for leveling up your character. It just kind of depends on how you want to do it, but there's a lot of milestone stuff. Now there's a lot of games uh, with everything that's more focused on the plot and the characters, that they don't do leveling at all. Uh, there's no leveling done whatsoever. And maybe that's because it's only a one-shot. But really realistic games don't do that. I know the uh, the Skies of Glass game that the Fear the Boot guys do. Well, specifically, it's written by Dan Repperger. Um, it, it doesn't do leveling. It doesn't do XP. You create your character, and then you interact with the world. And that's how it works. I was listening to a podcast. Uh, it was uh, the Save for Has Half podcast, which is the old Save or Die crew. It's it's part of them. They've, they've started a, a new podcast called Save for Half. Oh. And they were interviewing, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong, Mural Rasputin. Rasputin. Mur uh, the guy that made uh, Top Secret. Uh, Man, I'm sorry for butchering I want to say it's Mural Rasmussen. Rasmussen, yeah, I'd that sounds about right. Anyhow, that was kind of an interesting thing he was saying is the the old the original first edition top secret uh, spy role playing game had an XP system in it, and he said that like basically TSR told him hey you got to have this XP system in it every every game's got an XP system you got to have an XP system, and uh, so they tacked one in. Uh, and then here recently when they relaunched with the top secret new world order that was something they kind of steered away from. Uh, that they just they felt it had a grittier, more engaging feel to it to just say, hey, this is your character, and they're probably not going to be any better than they are now. Like all of us in real life, you're on a slow decline downhill. Uh, so, you know, see how long you can stay on top, see how long you can, you know, deal with things, and, uh, you know, you go through the, through the games and pick up wounds and things that, you know, uh, slowly chip away that character, but uh, I found that interesting. I found it refreshing. To... Yeah, so... 
Yeah, I would say XP is definitely old school. I, I've said it in, uh, before, and that's that's kind of my final word on that. As far as it's definitely old school, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, totally within that realm and only there and will never come back. Because one of the things I've done with my library game with the kids is I will hand out XP at the end of the session. And that is a way to reward people who are coming regularly. If you don't show up, you don't get XP. It's just as simple as that. You don't level up your character. And that's just the way that I'm doing it. Uh, it seems to be fair to everyone. Well, I remember being, I mean, you know, even as an adult, uh, you get a little excited towards the end of a game when you get to find out how much XP you get, mm -hmm. you know. It's kind of like, uh, you know... Uh, spinning the prize wheel or whatever on a game show, you know, well, come on, big money, big money, big money. Oh, well, here's know? an interesting thought about that. MMOs use XP. You level up with that. I know I play Lord of the Rings online some, not as much as Briggy does, but I'll play Lord of the Rings online and there's a progress bar at the bottom of the screen and it's telling you how much you lack to leveling up your character again. You know, it's the same thing. You open up skill trees, uh, you get a better, you know, uh, DPS or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, when you are at a higher level. I mean, yeah, it is also uh, based upon uh, your kit, your equipment and your armor and your magic and all this other things. But then you have a base DPS without any of that. And that's what XP is in old school D&D also. It's the dopamine running. Yeah, here. yeah, it really is. Um what about classes? Do you think classes is kind of going by the wayside? And I know, I know all these new games have classes, but it seems to me that there's always all these like uh, prestige class add-ons and these, these, uh, you know, things that happen to classes in the newer systems. Where yeah, this is a fighter, but he has this element now that makes him more like a, a sorcerer or more like a thief. And it, it, to me, it kind of muddies the water of what a class is to begin well, with. What do you guys Well, think? okay. You get, like, look at Star Wars West End. Uh, they would tell you to create an archetype, which was a one or two word, maybe three description. Uh, bounty hunter, uh, failed Jedi, former stormtrooper, former Imperial, um, whatever it might be. And it was an archetype that would kind of inform what your character did. And that archetype was more or less a class, you know, uh, but a lot of systems, uh, they don't really use classes, but then again, some, some systems and style of play don't lean towards that. Like superhero games. What's your class? Well, there's archetypes. You know, you can have your big bruiser like a Hulk. You can have your man of mystery like Batman. You can have your, um, your mystic Doctor Strange, Doctor Fate. You can have your gods and goddesses like Thor and Wonder Woman. You know, there's there's archetypes there too, but you don't have classes. Uh, but then there's other systems that do. It just depends on the system. You know, D and D definitely well, that's the way it was designed from day one. Uh, uh, Pathfinder, of course, does. Starfinder does. I'm trying to think of systems that use classes, classes alone. And I'm looking at my shelf from here, and um, I mean, you've got your—you basically have a, like a division there, right? You got like your skill-based mm -hmm. games, like your Savage Worlds and your Star Wars and things like that, and then you got your more class-based games. Well, look at this. look at Star Wars. Um, 
Western Games, there's your first Star Wars RPG, used archetypes. They lost the license. Wizards picked it up. What did they do? Classes. They did classes, they did species, they did an experience point thing because they were doing the D&D model. And then I didn't play their second iteration, what, Star Wars Saga is what they called it. I didn't play that at all. Yeah, but it, it wasn't too far off of the okay. first, from what I understand. Well, from what I understand, that was kind of a test ground for D&D 4. So, okay, there that is. And then there's the new Fantasy Flight Star Wars game, which I think Fantasy Flight is getting ready to lose as well. They did already. Yeah, I yeah. knew there was a lot they of rumors going around whether they were closing or not. Not the point. Anyway, so um, I bought one of the beginner sets. I haven't really had a chance to look through it a whole bunch, but I don't think they do classes either. Some versions of Star Trek, okay, you could have a game like Star Trek where you have the old Fossa version. They don't have classes, but depending on the type of game you're playing, which is probably in Starfleet and probably on something, a Constitution-class ship like the Enterprise, you know, you may not have classes, but you're definitely going to have defined roles because most of the time in, like, a Star Trek game, most of the players around the table are going to play members of the senior staff. They're going to play head of engineering, head of communications, the navigator, the helmsman, science officer, captain, doctor, things like that. So in some ways, their roles on the ship are a class as well, but they don't have mechanic-based classes. You know, uh, So it, it really just depends on... I think it's a style of gaming as far as classes are concerned. The Advanced Star Frontiers games, which is what I'm calling my homebrew of it, um, we'll have to, that's a whole other topic for a whole other time, but <laughs> I think we need to get into it at some point, not, maybe not this episode, right. but definitely a future episode. Yeah, well, and the, my idea is I'm actually considering of, uh, doing a kind of class light system and it's my way of taking what has always been a really janky skill system with Star Frontiers. That was my gateway drug. So, I mean, it's just the top for me. That was my first RPG and I've always wanted to kind of make it work. And there are certain things that I think can be updated and stuff like that. Um, I'm bringing up classes to help alleviate the skill system, which never worked really well when it came out. You know, and then they tried to do an overhaul with the Zeb's Guide, Zebulon's Guide to the Frontier. But then they stopped making Star Frontiers after they published the first Zeb's Guide, so it was like kind of half done. You know. Launch into nothing. Yeah, well, what they did, well, it's called the whole, the whole Dial Family Trust. Um, that, this can get into the history of, of gaming and stuff. They had the license to Buck Rogers. They were running TSR, so they sold the license that they owned to the company that they were running. You, you tell me that's not, you know, some kind of insider trading going on there. Um, but anyway. And you can't, can't run two sci-fi games right you know, so they killed in competition with one another and yeah so they killed star frontiers when i'm thinking why not just keep star frontiers and then create a buck rogers supplement using the star frontiers rules but no they didn't which would have been cool i'm a big buck rogers fan too so I was... so, so briggy you're you're somewhat newer to games i mean granted you've been playing games for what 12 15 years now but but somewhat newer do you have a preference between the skill-based systems and the class-based systems? Not really. Honestly, I I don't have, like, a big preference. I mean, there's certain systems I really like, and for different reasons, but it's definitely has nothing to do with the class or roles or any of that kind of thing. I mean, I'm enjoying playing Bard right now, but 
I don't know. I don't think you need it. I think you're more on the character side, and whatever the system calls for mechanically, you'll like you'll roll skills. with that. I like the skills. Okay. I like having lots of skills. All right, now, um, <laughs> yes, okay. as far as, yeah. like, in your mind, yeah. now, granted, you know, for everybody, this is a sliding scale, but, but in your individual minds, what year would you put as the the jump-off point between what you consider to be probably old-school games versus what you consider to be the, the nouveau well, that's a really good question. Um, I would say the def the defining moment, especially for someone who's like the one million pound gorilla in the room, which would be TSR in Dungeons and Dragons, would be when TSR was bought by Wizards of the Coast. That's definitely the start of it, uh, because they threw, they totally rehauled, overhauled. I'm sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. They totally overhauled the game. From that moment, I mean, they took, they kept a lot of the tropes of the game, but rewrote them, like the strength, all of the ability scores for D and D. They kept all of them, but all that other stuff, like bin bars, lift gates, yeah, stuff like systems, that that you yeah. used to get in your strength, they got rid of. Yeah, and then they they simplified it, then add skills to the side of it. Um, you know that that sort of question is like talking to a comic book geek and trying to say what's the defining or defining or dividing moment between golden age and silver age comics, silver age and bronze age, bronze age, copper, <laughs> copper to modern, whatever you want to call it. Was there a particular issue and that was it? Well, yeah, a lot of people do consider that like um, the debut of the silver age flash was the, was the defining moment of the start of the silver age. It might've been starting for a while, but that is the defining moment. You know, as far as gaming goes, uh, okay, I'll tell you something. And I got this a few years ago at Gen Con. I was talking to one of our local uh, game shop owners, and he was kind of considered the ambassador for Gen Con uh, for dealers and stuff like that. Anyway, I, I don't know what the whole deal was, but we were sitting there, and I saw him, and so we just sat down and we started talking. Uh, oh, I'll give a little love out that if anyone's listening. It was Saltire Games out in Lawrence. I was talking to Phil, who's one of the owners there. Yep. And I asked him, what, uh, you know, why don't, do you guys have a booth? And he told me how Gen Con doesn't allow uh, stores to sell product of companies that are there at Gen Con. So I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? Anyway, so we start talking, and uh, I'm interested in how the sausage is made. And we got on the subject of D&D, and he said, you know, one of the big things is, for the first time in a long time, Pathfinder and not D&D was the best-selling uh, role-playing game in the world. And that was during the days of fourth edition, which brought about Pathfinder. And that's when uh, Wizards did a complete retake uh, you know, of what they were doing with D&D, and that's when they came out with fifth edition. And I would say one of the things that was, it wasn't the advent of fourth edition, it was the advent of what they did with fourth edition – and another game that was doing the same thing they were doing became the best-selling game in the world. Uh, there's another moment. So you could look at TSR getting sold to, me, to Wizards, that's, uh, and then I'm at Paizo's the Pathfinder becoming a big is, game. Uh, uh, there in, what was it, about 2001 or so, when, when 3rd Edition really got its legs under itself, um, that's the jump-off point for me that you know these are the, the, the new school of games versus the old. 
And I think part of that is because that third edition really pretty much is still alive. I mean, that's really at its core what Pathfinder is. Uh, so those are still living, viable games versus these, you know, the old school games that kind of started falling off to the wayside. The companies that all went bankrupt and all that during that time period, the, the Fosses and Wedges and, you know, all of those guys. That's yeah, you see, and it's it's uh it's kind of um what's the word I'm looking for? It's um it's chaos theory. It's the butterfly effect. There you go. One little thing affected another, affected another, and next thing you know, you had this entire almost breakdown of the system. Um you know, at the time you had World of Darkness. Uh they had the most amazing setup. They you know they couldn't print something that didn't make and money. They, they didn't survive that but somehow they shot themselves in the foot. You know, I don't know. I don't know all the back story, but they really did not make it through. I mean, I remember that Gen Con where they had like this big, weird gothic bar in the middle of the uh, exhibitors hall. I'm like, what the heck is this? They were trying to go so on any hate mail. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't moment, like, the, uh, like that, the newer so. games and I'm not saying that they're, they don't deserve to, to be popular or whatever. I'm just looking for like the, the change of aesthetic, you know, and I know White Wolf still has some product out there. I don't know if it's under their. They've they've come out with new stuff again. They're uh, someone else. I think bought the yeah. IP or they did something with it. They their IP got bought out. Yeah, and I think another thing, and this used to just fire you up. I know was the D and D third edition OGL, the Open Gaming License. Now people had printed stuff a long time before, like Roll Aids. The Judges uh, Guild was stuff. very compatible uh, with yeah, first man. edition and second edition D&D, especially. For, and it, none of it was official, and it was compatible. None of it was official. None of it was compatible. But this was the first time it was official. This is the first time where they could say, okay, not only are you can, can you be compatible, you can actually put our logo and our name on your books. Not just, oh, compatible with most fantasy games were compatible with Dungeons and Dragons. You could use the D and D logo on your book. And I think that was a big deal. That was like, uh, the first time Marvel and DC did a crossover of characters with Superman and Spider-Man. That was kind of weird. That was a big deal. D and D was letting other people publish stuff for them. And so everyone jumped on this train. It was like the nineties comics boom. Yeah. Suddenly we'll everyone's putting a comic. Yeah, yeah, we've got a lenticular cover, we've got a gold foil embossed cover, we've got a black and white cover, we've got this. And it's really not ever gone away, but it's not the boom that it was. Um, but the OGL was like that. It broke the doors open for people to do all kinds of different stuff. Um, there's a lot of licensing now that wasn't going on before, and then they will use a game like Savage Worlds. There's a Solomon Kane game, there's... A, Deadlands is um, also a part of Savage Worlds now. There's all these different ones. Uh, but as far as a moment that was that where you could point to it and go, ah, that's – it's almost like Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax and, and those guys and then uh, – you know, the, the Chaosium stuff and Steve Jackson with GURPS and things like that um, – I'd almost call that the golden age of role-playing games. You know, that's the only way I can describe it. You know, are we now in a, quote, silver age, to borrow a comic book term? 
No, I think we're a little beyond that now. The Silver Age is even beyond us. I think we're in kind of a, I don't know, maybe not, but uh, I've never thought of it like that before. You, had, you and I had talked, uh, you know, setting up for this podcast that, you know, we're not sure if this podcast is, is on the curve or behind it because a lot of these companies that are that are printing modern role-playing games are now echoing back, uh, at least in some of the adventures. And, and then you got, of course, the OSR movement where there's, whole I was thinking clones that. being made of the older games and, and, and redesigns of them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you look at 5th edition and its lineup, I mean, they've tipped their hats to against the Giants. They've, uh, you know, kind of done a take at Temple of Elemental Evil, uh, The Sinister Secrets of Saltmarsh, Castle Ravenloft, Tomb of Horror, Hidden Shrine of uh, Moakchan. Uh, White well, that's Mountain. the whole Tales from the Yawning Portal book is nothing but a bunch of adventures that are older ones. First, second, third edition adventures that they're updating to fifth edition. And then Goodman Games, uh, you, you have the Keep on the Borderland, but they... Uh, They've come out with two others now, too. Yeah, they, they did Barrier Peaks, and they did uh, um, Isle, of Isle of Dread. And uh, yeah. one I'm really anxious for, they, they've got uh, Lost City coming out this summer. So, yeah, it's it's kind of... This this idea of taking the old and bringing it back, you know the what what did you uh, compare it to in Hollywood uh, the uh, what do you call it remake syndrome or something like that? Um, oh yeah yeah it's like none of the uh, none of the games are they're not coming up with a whole lot of new games they're just doing remakes you know okay that's that's cool because it's a touchstone there's a bit of nostalgia there for one they keep doing it because they know it works it's kind of like coming up with a sequel. But instead of a sequel to remake, I mean, how many Hollywood? I mean, how many Hollywood remakes have there been of movies? The best example I can think of, because it was done so horribly, was Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which was then remade. Was it Gus Van Sant or Guy Ritchie or whatever? Anyway, they did a remake, a shot-for-shot remake of it, and I'm sitting here thinking, why? Why? I mean. It's in my opinion, it's like what I've seen of the quote live action Disney The yeah. Lion King, which is not live action. It's all CG. <laughs> There's not one damn human in that whole movie, so how can it be live action? But it's okay, so there you it's more or less a shot for shot remake of The Lion King. You know, so we've got all these other games and they're more or less just a shot for shot remake of, say, Keep on the Borderlands or Hidden Shrine of Tamashan or whatever you want to call it. Um, how about this? How about we do we're going to do a sequel to Hidden Shrine of Tamashan or whatever. So there's a bit of continuity there, but that's a kind of a comic book. Well, kind of winding down this segment, um, let's kind of tell the listeners kind of what our goals are here why don't if everybody takes like maybe their top three products that they would like to revisit uh on this show and uh, we'll just kind of do one at a time everybody give one and then everybody give their second one and third one does that sound good yeah it actually sounds pretty good to me i don't really have any sure thought on that all right um i guess i'll go first um one of the things I'd love to take a look at is there was a company called Pacesetter that produced a uh, game back in the 80s or uh, mid-80s called Chill. And it's a horror-themed role-playing game. It wasn't, uh, it was not a Call of Cthulhu kind of thing. It was not like heavy in investigation and, and this, uh, you know, oppressive 
um, dangerous kind of environment sort of thing uh, that was ultra serious. Uh, it was more of kind of a silly Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of setting where you were investigators uh, and you'd go fight vampires this time around and next time around you're you know at this Scooby-Doo mansion uh, figuring out a ghost mystery and uh, kind of thing. It, it just really seemed to have a very interesting uh, palette for the kinds of games it could produce. I've heard the system is terrible. I've never actually played it. I do own some of the books, um, but not enough of them uh, to ever think about, oh, I'm going to run a campaign. Uh, but that's one that I'd like to take a look at is Chill by Pace Setter. Okay. Um, how, uh, Briggy? Um, I'm probably curious to see where uh, the Lord of the Rings... RPG is going to go since 5e is gone. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I am going to go with um, and the system. I'm you know I, you really got me thinking because I'm trying to come up with one. You know, would there be one I would like to revisit and see what they could do with it? You know what? Because uh, GURPS gets a lot of hate from people, and I don't know why. It's very plug and playable. You can get as crunchy or as smooth as you want with that. Um, but I'm going to say with um, Tune <laughs> is the one I'm going to say because Tune is like GURPS Light, and it's, you know, light on plot, light on character. It's it's almost like an improv role-playing game. I could see that updated, completely move it out of the whole GURPS thing, and maybe, maybe you're going to move it into something like uh, a um, fate-based system or something <laughs> newer altogether. Uh, but Tune would be a good one, and I think Tune would be uh, – it's due for an update because I think it's a great system. I gave an idea once. I was on um, – oh, gosh, I can't remember what the podcast was, but I was a guest, and then we were, they were doing an episode about noir. Uh, that was the theme of oh, the yeah. episode. And I'm a big noir guy. I like – bad people. I, I, I like bad people making bad decisions or good people making bad decisions, you know, like a game of fiasco. Uh, and I always said, if you ever wanted to do a who framed Roger Rabbit game, you take your, your core GURPS game and you take tune and you mush them together because they're the basic, the same mechanic, six sided dice. So I would say tune, but then uh, I'm going to go tag on to another one because I've mentioned it several times. Star Frontiers. Uh, Star Frontiers is, just, like I said, I love that game. Love it, love it, love it. Flaws and all. Um, Aside from the nostalgia factor, what about it makes it, in your mind, such an ideal science uh, fiction setting? Um, one of the things that I really like about it is it's it's a little limited. It's a little Star Frontier-ish, you know, as in it's on the frontier, you know, Uh there's, there's not a lot, uh, you know, you're not getting great cosmic powers and stuff like that. It almost comes across as very low tech, uh, which kind of, you know, and I think part of that now is looking back on it. It came out in, what, 1983, and this was all super high tech. It hasn't aged well. Um, I, I even shoehorned that into the old Alternity system by TSR when Wizards had bought them. Um, they had a setting... Uh, yeah, it was Alternity. It was the Alternity game, but it was a setting in the Alternity game 
that had these regions of space, and one was called the Lost Region. And in my head, I placed the Star Frontiers world in that setting, and that's where it was. And it's removed from everything. I have some headcanon about that uh, for the game. But I just... I think part of the problem with Star Frontiers is it's not like D&D. Um, it has a very specific setting. Um, you have the worlds of the United Planetary Federation, you know, really close initials to the Star Trek stuff there. But I think it would have worked better, which is what they did with Alternity, um, when they, if they would have made it a generic science fiction system and then plugged Star Frontiers onto it as here's a setting. Here's our default setting, but here's the basic rules that you could use to, say, do a Flash Gordon game which is a mix-up, say, of D&D and Star Frontiers. Uh, here's rules to do a Buck Rogers game. Here's rules to do... They even came out with a 2001 supplement, which doesn't make sense, but they did it. Um, you know. <laughs> uh, but then I think that's part of the problem with that, and that's why I want to revisit it. Uh, and that's what I'm working on. So anyway, Star Frontiers is the second one for me. Briggy, what would your number two be? <sighs> second game... Boy, that's tough. I really like Pathfinder, but I did not like the second edition or revised whatever the heck that was. We bought the test book? We bought the play test. Yeah. Well, part of it, too, is you don't have the long, you know, kind of like the the long story of RPGs like Lou and I do, because we go back, I go back to junior high. You know, I played Star Frontiers, that was my first game, and then the first game I ever bought was Redbox D&D. You know, and I, so we go back a bit. Um, your first game was D&D 3rd Edition. Not 3.5, 3rd Edition. Right. So. And it was good. Yeah, you I don't like have it. that. You don't have so much of that nostalgia factor for a specific game. You might have a, like a setting or something. You might have a nostalgic factor for something altogether different. Well, I was thinking about the uh, Star Frontiers yeah. because I think that the limited power makes you come up with more imaginative ways to do things. Hmm. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm seeing a show in my mind here where, where we take on Star Frontiers but uh, you and Briggy have to work separate, and we see what each one comes up with. Husband versus wife. Wife versus husband. <laughs> oh, I don't know what that <laughs> one would flop so Because well. <laughs> here's, here's how I'm going to do this. Yeah, everyone's going to come up with their take on Star Frontiers, and I'm going to go, wrong! <laughs> You're wrong, and yeah, I'll tell you why. Probably. <laughs> my number two, I think, uh, I'd like to look at the adventure B5, Whore on the Hill. Thomas, you were talking at the beginning of the uh, cast about how uh, the keep on the borderlands is your quintessential go-to moment in your childhood experience mm -hmm. of role-playing. Uh, for me, Whore on the Hill, B5, that was the first module that as a kid I actually sat down and read because I'd always poo-pooed modules, always thought, ah, I can make stuff up, I don't need these. But I had inherited a pretty good selection of modules from a garage sale that my aunt went to. Uh, so I finally one day sat down and read it, and I was like, wow, that, that's pretty cool. And, and 
I've always thought that it's probably one of the best written modules for the old school D&D that was ever produced, but one that nobody ever really has heard of, nobody's really played. It doesn't get much respect or love out in the, the old school community. Uh, so I'd like to look at it for no other purpose than to show people that it's a great module and more people need to play it. Like that. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with my last one um, because I think it might be one of my favorites of all time. It's just a solid system. Uh, the die were a little wonky, but now it's a time period where people use a lot of wonky die. <laughs> that is the it is the West End Games DC superhero system. Yeah, it's got a my love. specialized stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, that was a shiny that I introduced at the shop where we were playing. <laughs> you bastard. And yeah, I, I totally killed the Star Wars the game. game. I did. I totally killed Oops. it and ground it into the ground. But I think <laughs> Rose at the shop was real happy because everyone went and bought the whole game system. So I made a bunch of sales. Yeah, those were what, like $40 a pop or something? They, they weren't cheap, that's for sure. Yeah. And my book, my first book fell apart, so I got a three-ring hole punch yep. and hole punched it, put it in a binder. I still have the binder, and then at Gen Con a year or two ago, I because that book goes for a pretty decent amount of money online, I found one, I want to say, for 10 bucks, and I snatched it up. So I've got two copies of that. And the dice, the specialized dice, go for a crazy amount of money online right now. The dice that came with the box set can go for like 50 bucks. The secondary uh, dice they came out with, which had other Justice League characters, uh, uh, not even in the little blister pack that they came in, they go, if you just have the dice, they go for $150 on eBay. Ooh. I have to yeah. do some eBay. I'm not getting rid of them. I love That's... them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. they, they I, You know what's funny about it? I've never used those dice. Yeah, they were. I'm trying to remember how those worked because the, were those just like specialized character dies? I can't really remember. Yeah, it was. So just like in the original system there, or the original game, you had your red Superman, Batman, wild die. Um, you had your basic die, which had you know the Batman symbol on it, and it was based off of successes and failures. And there was a wild die. Um, and so you had the, you know, and so you had to have like a little uh, cheat sheet if you were using regular six-sided dice uh, with it. But one of the things I really, uh, I think now, so many games have specialized dice now. Like you have Fate dice and Fantasy Flight. Everything that they do has specialized dice. Uh, yeah. There's a lot. I've of, heard that the the new Star Wars is like reading tea leaves or something. That you, you you roll these dice with weird symbols and got to figure out what it all means and. Oh yeah, and even the um, the Modifius Star Trek Adventures role playing game, they do that a little bit with their effects die. You roll, you yeah. you use yeah, you use standard d twenties to do all of your actions and stuff like that, and then it's based off of successes, based off of target numbers. It's a little complicated, uh, but once you get into it, you'll realize oh, it's really not. But then their effect die is you roll a six-sided dice. They might have a blank on it. They might have a little starburst. They might have two starbursts. They might have yeah. a little Star Trek Delta on it. And each one means a different thing. So specialized die are something that does not scare people off. No. The more bells, bells and whistles, the better. 
Real quick tangent, Thomas. Uh, were you aware mm-hmm. that they were about to release a Green Lantern supplement when uh, Wedge went under? Um, oh. <laughs> they did. It was kind of a module. It was the second. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Wedge? I was this was like a Mayfair. whole, yeah, the, the DC Universe role-playing game. It was a whole supplement on the Green Lantern and the Green Lantern Corpse. Um or core, I mean, boy, well, you know that's, that's a hillbilly mistake. Anyhow, yeah. uh, the uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, can't can't hide the roots around here. Um, yeah. So uh, I just don't I actually found Lafayette. a place. I live in Southern Lafayette. <laughs> I'll have to uh, have to get with you because I found a place where you can get the uh, the PDF of it. You know, I I don't know about the legality of it, but uh, it's interesting. I haven't had a chance to well, look at I it. Well, I won't yet. tell if you don't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And all the listeners, just keep quiet, okay? Well, yeah, we're not going to talk about all the PDFs that I have. (laughs) No. No. Well, I mean, I try and get things, I get the regular version. If I can't find it, you know, I go to eBay. If I look at it and think, well, I still need to make a car payment this month, (laughs) I'm not going to do this. You know, and then I'm like, hmm. It's a pirate's life for me. Yeah. Um, oh my! I'm pretty good. If if I get something that's that's illicit and I like it, I will hunt it down and buy it. Uh, you know. Yeah, and I I generally will too, if especially if I'm a collector of it. You know, but I I think it's interesting you bring that up because creating a Green Lantern game, Green Lantern in specific, that's been kind of a white whale for me for a long time. Trying to just figure out the mechanic and how to work, and I'm very much influenced by the Jeff Johns run on green lantern you know so yeah uh we'll have to talk about that later off the mics riggy you got a number three uh yeah i think it would be cool to do more doctor who because i have i think we haven't dove into that enough and we have a lot of the books, which, so uh, it would be really cool to play it. Which, which version of Doctor Who are you guys running? What uh, uh, system? When, when we run it, we use the Cubicle 7 system, yeah. which is an elegant system, especially the initiative system. It's That's the word I would use, elegant. I was recently, recently listening to a podcast reviewing the original one by FASA, and uh, they really were not kind to it. They said it was just... Uh, just not the way Doctor Who should feel. That it had a very militaristic sort of feel to it, and just wasn't wasn't right. Well, that's the cool thing about the Cubicle Seven system, is they have a unit source book, which is kind of the little military bent to Doctor Who. So if you wanted to do that flavor of game, it's fine. But the the Cubicle Seven version of the Doctor Who game, the initiative system, is what makes it so cool. Uh, it's all based on what your intent is. It's not based on what you roll uh, because the doctor talks his way out of situations very often. You look around the table and say, okay, what's everyone's action? You have talk, uh, run, or move. There's doing something, like maybe you're working on a computer or an engine or you're using the sonic screwdriver to do something. And then the fourth thing that you're doing is that's actually fighting. So in the order I mentioned them is the order that they happen. So everyone who's talking, you get to go first. You know, then everyone who's running, running away, you get to go next. Uh, And then people who are doing something, whatever that might be, then it's your turn. And then finally, if you're fighting, now you can instigate your fight. But what's interesting is with each different level of the initiative order, 
it might circumvent and delete the, the following initiative orders. So if the doctor is talking or your characters are talking and they're talking to, you know, your bad guys, they're talking to the Santarans and they're talking them down off the ledge of, you know, blowing us up or something, uh, and they agree to it, the people who ran away have ran away. People who are doing something can continue to do what they're doing. But the people who are fighting, well, they got no one to fight now because they're not <laughs> fighting. You know? Right. So it's elegant like that, especially the initiative system. But, um, yeah, it's something we could visit. It's an active game, but it's a lot of fun. It is. That's my number three. My number three is a game by Avalon Hill called Tales of the Floating Vagabond. Have you guys... Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. I remember seeing this game, uh, the cover of it, at the hobby shop where I used to get games as a kid. And just looking at it and going, what the hell is that? It had like this flying car that was in the middle of this like nebulous um, primordial space area. And it had like, uh, oh man, I can't even remember. It had some like bodybuilder dude in the car. It was like a, a convertible. It had just, just an alien, a robot, just everything you can imagine. I'm probably not even close to, to remembering it correctly. But, um, you know, at the time, I was really turned off by that. I was like, ah, this looks like craziness. But in my adult years, uh, and after I've read kind of what it was really about, I've kind of become interested in actually playing it and seeing what it would be like with a, a good group of friends. It's basically this trans-dimensional bar that has a doorway that randomly picks people up from different time periods and different dimensions. So, like, you and your time and dimension walk into a bar, but this doorway of the floating vagabond just sucks you through into the this dimensional bar and then you know it's your typical you're there at the end and uh, adventure unfolds you know something happens and you get enlisted to do this thing uh, hoping to somehow eventually get back to the time or dimension that you're from uh, just a lot of craziness I imagine being that it's an Avalon Hill game that the rules are super duper crunchy <laughs> So I don't know how that'll play with uh, a game that's supposed to be lighthearted and silly and tongue in cheek, but I'd love to take well, a look. Well, I just at pulled it. up the, I just pulled up the cover. How close uh, was I? What's on there? Available. Uh, you're you're on. You are dead on. Um, it's a, it's pretty much that's all that the cover is, and it's Tales of the Floating Vagabond. There's looks like there's a big bodybuilder looking dude. There's a, uh, looks like there's a, looks like there's like a. Big fightery, fat-looking dude with a shield and a turkey leg. You see, uh, like a, a, a mythical character-looking thing, like a Hercules. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I see him on there too. Uh, looks like there's Elvis on there <laughs> as well. Uh, the reason I look this up is because a few years ago, hold on, I'm trying to come on, go back. Um, oh, there it is. Uh, there was a second edition, and it was done on Kickstarter. I have to look into and that. It's just a, yeah, um, Tales from the Floating Vagabond, uh, a tabletop role-playing game of high adventure and low comedy in the best bar in the multiverse. And I remember this when it came out, and it's still got that same feel. Like, here's another one. It's a picture of it looks like a barbarian in a bar. There's a 
pachyderm-looking guy. He looks like he's from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's got a pirate in a headlock. There's an Indiana Jones-looking guy. Looks like he's hitting an Imperial officer from Star Wars. Yeah, I think you're looking. There's, there's. I think the the Game Master screen. That's the Kickstarter one. Oh, okay. That's what I was. The, the Game but Master the, screen the was done screen. by Jim Holloway, who's one of my favorite uh, RPG artists. And it was kind of this mix of movie characters all in the bar, in the middle of a bar fight. So I don't know if there's there's uh, riffing off of that or what, but oh yeah, it's pretty much in the exact same, uh, in the exact same vein as that. It looks like it was successful. It's out there. Um, I don't know anything about the the mechanics or who was doing the game, but it was a very successful Kickstarter. Back in 2013, 2014. Well, that's good to know because the originals were just insane on uh, eBay, at least back when I was looking into this several years ago. Um, there's one right now I'm looking at. It's $29.98. That's not too bad. Yeah. Um, I don't know how big it is, and it's like six bucks shipping. So there you go. Yeah. So it's, well, this one looks like it's uh, Tales from the Floating Vagabond Adventure with No Name. So it makes me wonder if this is a module. Yeah, I think that's a module, then, not this system. Right. But that was, that's that. All right, well, we've got to wrap up this segment. Um, Listeners, if you have your own remodeling ideas, if you have a challenge for us to look at a set of rules, look at a module, look at whatever, uh, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, Also, if you're a game designer out there, a fiction author, RPG publisher, if you want to get in on the fun, we would love to have guest hosts come on and test their chops, upgrading some of the adventures and systems that we're covering. It'd especially be cool if you're the original developer for some of these games and you want to come back, give it a second lick here, and uh, let folks know what you would change if you had it to do over again. On our next show, episode one, we're going to be taking a fresh look at B2, The Keep on the Borderlands. Uh, that's the 1979 publishing of that. It's a game that started most of us into RPGs, uh, came with the Holmes and uh, Blue Box Edition, also was uh, in the Moldvay Cook uh, Basic Edition. Uh, it's titled as being the, the most widely sold RPG adventure ever, with 1,500,000 units of the original having been in print and sold. <laughs> Do you have any geek credit? All right, with that, we're going to close the show with a a segment we hope to do uh, called Geek Cred. Uh, It's a segment where we take turns asking each other some questions. We've not disclosed these questions ahead of time, so this is kind of a hot seat moment. Each week, we'll do five questions, uh, multiple choice, true or false. We'll try to keep a running total of how many points every person gets, And after, say, episode 20, we'll figure out who's ahead in points. And you, the viewers, if you have an idea of uh, what the winner should get or what the loser should uh, have to do, go ahead and send those in. I'm sorry, I cut somebody off there. What did you have to say? Nope, nope, I'm fine. I didn't come up with any questions. Oh, no, I thought you were in the hot seat. I came up with a question. Oh, okay. Okay, I'm in the hot seat. You're in the hot seat. All right, are you ready? (laughs) All right. I'm going to be the grand inquisitor. You're in the hot seat. Here we go. Question one. All right, so we're going to be renovating B2, the Keep on the Borderlands, next episode. Thomas, how many licensed official printed versions and editions of this game have been released? Okay, 
Now you so got like multiple the toys. Versions of the... Okay. Yeah, so these are these are reprints. These are licensed games that are revisions of it. Uh, you know, like Return to and stuff like that. Uh, so how many different okay. editions, versions, and uh, printings of this game have been released? Uh, your your choices are three, five, seven, or nine. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, let's see, I'm going to talk this out because <laughs> there was Keep on the Borderlands, which has been included in the box set and also been sold on its own. Uh, there is Return to Keep on the Borderlands, which was done. There is the Goodman Games uh, Into the Borderlands uh, book that is out right now, which is a reprint of the original and a 5e update. Um, I'm with three. Uh, there was technically when Wizards of the Coast was playtesting D&D 5th edition, all the material that they used for that was the Caves of Chaos from Keep on the Borderlands. But four is not one of my options, so I'm going to go with three. All right. Uh, the correct answer was nine. Really? Yes. So uh, I can't afford all those editions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there are uh, – let's see if I can get this right. There were three – Different editions of the original module, which included slightly different stats for the monsters wow. and things. Uh, then there was the In Search of Adventure, where they reprinted it as part of a pack of uh, the B uh, series of modules. Then you there know, was I have the that PDF too. <laughs> yeah. Then there was the silver edition version of Keep on the Borderlands that came with the big anniversary box. Then there was Return to Keep on the Borderlands. Then there was Little Keep on the Borderlands, which was a Hackmaster uh, reboot of it that was okay. licensed. Then Hackmaster also released a version that was called, um, oh man, now I'm, uh, Frandor's Keep. Uh, and then finally, as you already said, uh, we have Goodman Games uh, version of that product. So nine, nine versions. Okay. Wow. All right, question number two. So far, no points for Thomas. Alright, mm. not, 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 you know, I'm not trying to <laughs> grind you down here. I just, just giving the listeners an update. Alright, question number two. Which direction does the wizard on the old TSR logo face? So the old TSR logo had a little wizard in a circle. Which direction, mm -hmm. hey, don't, don't go look on your bookshelf now. Which direction does the wizard face? <laughs> does he face forward at the reader? Does he face left? face right, or did the design create two faces that were facing left and right? So again, your choice I'm is just... forward, left, right, or was it a design that actually had two faces incorporated in it that were facing left and right? I'm going to go with just left. Left is correct. Yeah, I thought so. All right, let, let's get out of the TSR stuff here. Let's get Ooh. into something I know you know a lot about. Uh, for those of you uh, listening at home, uh, Thomas is a huge Conan uh, fan. He's um, got mm -hmm. some amazing artwork on his uh, walls uh, for Conan the Barbarian. So we're going to ask you a question about the Conan the Barbarian film. Um, okay. So I'm going to give you a list of actors, and I want you to tell me the one that has never portrayed Conan on film. Okay, so which one okay. of these was not Conan the Barbarian? Your choices are Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jason Momoa, 
Jack Lelane, Alfred Rankovich. Um, I want to go with Jack Lelane. You are correct. Yeah. I was, I was hoping I could get could. you with Jack he, he or with uh, Alfred Yankovich, but uh, so that's you, you know who he is, right? Um, was he the one who did the TV series? No, he's yeah. actually so that's uh, Weird Al Yankovich's real name. Oh, okay, yeah, ah. from the the movie UHF. Yeah, he did Conan the Librarian on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Okay. So hey, right now you're you know, sitting I at two points. That on a technicality, if I got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you're sitting at two points. Pretty good. Almost half. Uh, so question four: the th- scheduled third Schwarzenegger Conan movie was canceled mm-hmm. due to Arnold's commitment to the Predator. All right, so there's supposed to be three movies that he was going to be doing. The third one he, he canceled his commitment to. Um, what cult film did that script get turned into? So they salvaged the script for the third Conan movie. They made it into a different movie. What was it? Here are your choices. Cole the Conqueror, Legend, Kroll, or The Beastmaster? I want to say it's Beastmaster. No, it was Cole the Conqueror with uh, Kevin Sorbo. Wait a minute, you're saying that was... That was originally going to be Conan the Conqueror. They took that script, changed the title character, put Kevin Sorbo in there, and the rest is history. Well, I'm going to call you... I'm going to call a technical on that one because, one, it was much later... Uh, and secondly, it is absolutely 100% the Cole storyline in that movie. Really? From I, the book. Okay. Yeah, I, from I, the novel by Robert E. Howard, the novella. I, I may have to uh, forward you some points in our second episode. i got to do some more research on that. Uh, my, my sources on that were Wikipedia and... Uh, oh. <laughs> and Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Uh, anyhow, my sources on that were Wikipedia and then the, uh, the, the what was it called, the, the like Conan Film Archives or something like that. So I, I'll, I'll go do some more research. I may have to give you the point on that. Okay, because I thought the third movie was actually going to be, it might have been titled Conan the Conqueror. Uh, and I think it was going to be Conan actually getting the throne. He was going to become king by the end of it. Oh, yes. So there was also, you're right, uh, a few years back, maybe a decade ago, they were uh, planning uh, Conan in his much older age. Uh, and, and I think you're right. I think it was called like Conan the King or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, they wrote a script. Nothing ever really came of it. It went into development hell. But yeah, back in the 80s, they I thought they were going to do a third Conan movie and it was going to be kind of the same plot. Anyway, go for your All right, fifth one. Uh, we'll go to some comic book lore here, <laughs> rounding out our okay. uh, geek cred. Um, so uh, we've all seen Superman versus Batman, and we know how important the names of mothers can be. Um, <laughs> what was Superman's Kryptonian's mom's name? Okay, so his, his mom from the planet Krypton, what was her name? Was it La-Rel? Was it Ursa? Was it Lara? Or was it Lore Mar? Uh, number three, Laura. Yeah, you're right. Excelente. Three out of five and possibly four once we do a little little deeper <laughs> dig on the other. All right, excellent. So you, you, you've done well. You're ahead of us all, at least for now. Okay. 
So if it's five questions, even if I don't get the other one, I've got three out of five. So uh, I have three points. And but more importantly, I've salvaged or managed to keep my geek cred. You got geek cred, bud. Yeah, you got to at least get three out of five. So all right, right. that we're signing off. Uh, You guys want to say your goodbyes? Um, bye. (laughs) That was very imaginative. Hasta la vista. I was actually channeling, uh, it was in the movie Tombstone, uh, when the Earps are riding out of town, and they're like, we're leaving town, and then I I can't remember who the character was, just looks at him and goes, well, bye. (laughs) There you go. Uh, I'll go off that, and I'll just tell everyone out there, hey, I'll be your Huckleberry. And that closes our show. This has been... Yeah, that's not creepy at all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's Tombstone, man. Get the Hollywood, or Holiday, I mean. Anyhow, uh, this old dungeon is copyright 2020. The views expressed in this show are the views of the individual hosts and do not reflect the opinions or beliefs of anyone else on the show, the show itself, or even rational thought at large. We reserve the right to sound like them with ass hat, submit all questions and complaints to thisoldungeon at gmail.com. I'm your Huckleberry.